This episode is brought to you by Easy Roller Dice. Head to EasyRollerDice.com and use the coupon code GMJ and get 10% off your purchase. Star Walker Studios presents Game Master's Journey, your multidimensional RPG podcast. Hello, fellow gamer. Welcome to episode 145 of Game Master's Journey, your multidimensional RPG podcast. I'm Lex Starwalker. On this show, we discuss the craft and art of game mastering. Not only do I pass along any knowledge I've gained over 25 plus years of running RPGs, I also share wisdom from guest GMs and listener GMs like you. This week, I return to the Player's Handbook to discuss Chapter 9, Combat. But before I get into that, I just want to remind you that I am going to be launching a Kickstarter in the near future for my 5th edition D&D adventure, The Trickster's Labyrinth. So I am super excited to, to get this out there and see what you all think of it. Nikki and I are working on the Kickstarter campaign right now. We've been fighting the flu for the past few weeks. Um, Nikki is still kind of suffering from it. So it's kind of delayed us a little bit, but we're going to get that off the ground as soon as we possibly can. And this is an adventure for third level characters, and it can be used no matter what campaign setting you're playing in, whether it's Forgotten Realms or Eberron or a homebrew setting of your own creation. Doesn't matter. It will be easy to use this adventure. It's a great adventure to start a campaign with if you want to start with third level characters. It also works well as an adventure to drop into a campaign that's already been going on. And and it's just a nice little uh, interlude adventure, I guess you could say, if you want to do something completely different. I give a lot of pointers on running the adventure and different things you could do with it, lots of GM advice, which probably isn't a surprise to you. And I think it'll be a great teaching tool for newer GMs to kind of learn the ropes of, of GMing. And I think it'll be a lot of fun. And I'm really excited to see what you think of it. So I will definitely let you know on the show once the Kickstarter is going. But if you want the most up-to-date information on the Kickstarter Probably the, the best way is to join our community on Google+, the community for Game Master's Journey. You can find a link to that at starwalkerstudios.com and or follow me on Twitter at Lex Starwalker. Probably definitely announce those two places first. So if you want to know before everybody else, that's where to be. Also at the top of the show, I want to give a shout out and a thank you to some new patrons that have joined the Starwalker Studios Patreon. I really appreciate all the new patrons we've been getting lately. It's uh, awesome <laughs> and a huge help going forward. So kudos and thank you to Paul Glass, Christian Rays, and Eloy Munoz. Thank you so much to all of you. So great to have you on board. And I hope that you're subscribed to the private uh, RSS feed for patrons over at patreon.com and that you're getting all your bonus content, all the archived episodes of Game Master's Journey, GM Intrusions, outtakes, bloopers, um, all that fun stuff, as well as the patron cast that I do just for you guys. So I uh, hope you guys are, are subscribed to that. And if you have any problems or you're not sure how to do that, 
uh, let me know and I will happily help you out. And uh, if you're listening to this show and you're not yet a patron, please consider it. I'd really appreciate you becoming a patron. Costs money to do this. Takes a lot of time to do this and work and effort and all that good stuff. And I got to pay the bills too. So any way you can help out uh, helps me immensely. And, you know, while I'm giving my spiel, I guess I'll just say that that there are other great ways that you can help out. Um, if you're not ready to become a patron, you can make a one-time donation over at starwalkerstudios.com. And if you're tight on money, another great way that you can help out is leave me a review on iTunes. It helps new people find the show. And if you leave a five-star review, I will thank you on the show and, and share your review if it's entertaining or I like it or, yeah, I'll probably share it anyway. Unless you say mean things to me, then I, then I probably won't. But I'll still thank you. And another great way that you can help out is you can use my Amazon referral link. So if you head to the bottom of the show notes and you click uh, to take yourself to the support page at starwalkerstudios.com, or you can go to starwalkerstudios.com slash support. It's pretty easy to do. Um, I have an Amazon referral link. You click that, takes you to Amazon. You can buy whatever you want to buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it helps me out. So, yeah. So I really appreciate um, everybody that helps out. Thank you very much. All right. So as I said, I am going to be discussing Chapter 9 of the Player's Handbook today, uh, all about combat. And this is a doozy. Um, <laughs> there's a lot in this chapter. This is one of the big uh, rules sections of the game. And I'm going to try to get through it in one episode. It might be a long episode today, but um, I got a lot to talk about. So without further ado... Let's get into the player's handbook. Today, I return to discussing the player's handbook. So I've been going through the player's handbook, hitting the highlights and really digging into the nuts and bolts of this edition of D&D and, and how it all works. So whether you're a player or a DM, I think that this series of episodes will be helpful to you. There are a lot of rules in the game, and even more than that, there's a lot of optional rules and rules variants that you can use or not use if you're the DM. So many that it's easy to miss some or forget about ones that, that you read. I've heard from a lot of people that have said that this has been helpful and helped remind them of things that they forgot about or maybe didn't notice. And if we run into any uh, sticky rule situations, we'll, we'll try to dig into those. So when I originally came up with this idea for this series on the show, I actually was planning to go through the Dungeon Master's Guide, which I'm still going to do. But in preparing for that, I figured, well, I should probably start with the Player's Handbook and at least go through the, quote, Dungeon Master material in the Player's Handbook just so that we can have a nice firm foundation before we really start getting into the Dungeon Master's Guide, which is where we're going to find a lot of variations to the game and a lot of little dials that, that you can set and tweak to get the game experience to be exactly what you want it to be. So this discussion of the player's handbook has taken a bit longer than I thought it would and has gone a bit more in depth than I thought it would, but that's okay. And if you are a new game master getting ready to run 
D&D 5th edition, maybe for the first time, or, or maybe you're just starting out, the majority of the rules of the game are just in a few chapters in the player's handbook. And these chapters are in part two of the book, Playing the Game, and they're chapters seven through ten. So chapter seven is all about using the ability scores and, and how to set up basic roles and checks. And we discussed chapter seven in episode 140 of the show. Chapter eight is adventuring, and that has your rules for movement, whether that's movement on a tactical scale during a combat or overland movement, all kinds of movement as well as vision and light and things about that and the resting rules. And I went all through that in episode 142 of Game Master's Journey. And now chapter nine that we're talking about today is the combat rules. And then we're going to wrap up this discussion with chapter 10, which is the rules for magic. So if you're a new dungeon master getting ready to run D&D and you want to bone up on the rules, or if you're, you know, been running the game for a while and you want to bone up on the rules, chapter seven through 10 has all the rules for you as far as the general rules. The rest of the player's handbook is specific rules. So we talked about at the beginning of this series about how in D&D, there's this idea of a specific rule beats out a general rule. So chapter 7, 8, 9, 10 have the general rules of the game, which is really as a DM what you want to focus on. And then the other chapters are going to have more specific rules that maybe override or supplement those general rules. And those are going to be rules like in the character classes, different abilities that different characters get, or in the different races, different abilities that they get, or in the chapter on spells, all the different spells and what they do. So as a new DM, you don't really need to worry so much about that stuff to run the game. You want to more focus on the general rules, chapters 7 through 10, and really be comfortable with those. And then you can handle those specific rules as they come up during play. I'm definitely in the school of thought that it is the player's responsibility to understand and know any general rules that have to do with their character. So if a player is playing an elf evocation wizard, then that player should know the rules for elves and should know the rules for wizards and should know the rules for evocation wizards and should also be familiar with any spells that they plan on using as well as any feats that they might have, et cetera, et cetera. So especially as a new GM, you can really manage um, your workload by focusing on chapter seven through 10, focusing on those general rules that you need to understand to be able to run the game. Let the players worry about those specific rules when it comes to class abilities, spells, feats, et cetera. Now, of course, I'm talking about during actual gameplay. In between sessions or before or after sessions, you may have players that have questions. How does this spell work? How does this class ability work? And that's a great time that you can explore those questions together using the various resources that you have. All right, so let's get into Chapter 9 Combat and see what we've gotten here. So first off, we have a section on the order of combat, and this is talking about rounds and turns. Now, you know, a tripping point in fifth edition for 
GMs and players like myself who have played older editions in the game is sometimes there are subtle changes to things in the game. So a perfect example of this is the terms round and turn. In second edition, the terms round and turn meant something slightly different than it does in fifth edition. And I'm not even going to talk about what it meant in second edition because that's not relevant. But if you're someone who played or ran second edition or first edition, definitely pay attention to this because rounds and turns may not be exactly what you think they are. So in a nutshell, a round is a round of, say, combat. And you don't only use rounds and turns in combat. You can use them in any situation where you want to keep track of who's doing what when and make sure all the players get a fair chance to act. But combat's an easy example. So a round in combat is just the time that it takes everybody to take a turn. And then a turn is your turn during a round of combat. So as a player, you get one turn around. So the round is all the players' turns as well as all the NPCs' turns. And it's really just that simple. Now, a round represents about six seconds of time. And that's, that's a fluid thing. You know, you don't necessarily have to worry about the fact that it's sec six seconds. Just let things flow organically. But it can be handy when you have something that says, oh, like, for instance, a spell that lasts a minute. Well, you know that a round is six seconds, so a minute would be 10 rounds. So times like that is really the only time that it really matters that a round is six seconds. But it's good to know. So in combat, for example, you have rounds. And during the round, you determine the order of turns as far as who gets to go first, who gets to go second, using initiative. So everybody rolls initiative. You go from the highest initiative to the lowest. Once everybody's had a turn, you begin the next round of combat. So here at the bottom of this page, we have a little text box that calls out kind of a step-by-step -step guide to running combat. So step one, determine surprise. The DM determines whether anyone involved in the combat encounter is surprised. So that's the first thing you do. Step two, establish positions. The DM decides where all of the characters and monsters are located. Given the adventurer's marching order or their stated positions in the room or other location, the DM figures out where the adversaries are, how far away, and in what direction. So if you're using a grid and miniatures, then positioning's, you know, pretty straightforward and you'll look to that to see where everybody is. If you're using theater of the mind, positioning is still relatively straightforward and you're going to refer to the marching order to help you figure out where the player characters are in relation to one another. And then you're just going to decide where the NPCs are. Step three is roll initiative. Everyone involved in the combat encounter rolls initiative, determining the order of the combatants' turns. Now, I will refer you back to the last episode, episode 144, when I talked about introducing new players to the game. And in there, I suggested what I think is a better way to handle initiative, which would slightly change this order a bit. And, and that advice, in a nutshell, I'll, I explained it more in last episode, but in a nutshell is I suggest that you not roll initiative at the beginning of combat because it interrupts the flow of the narrative, it disrupts your pacing, and it also signals to the players that they should fight. 
So if you're someone like me who will use initiative in situations other than combat just to give everyone a free turn, a lot of times just by asking for an initiative role, some players will be swayed into thinking that this should be a combat when maybe it shouldn't or it doesn't have to be. So the way I do it is at the beginning of the session, I have the players roll initiative. I record those numbers. I then use those for the first encounter in which I need initiative. And then at the end of that encounter, I have them roll initiative again, which I then use in the next encounter. And in that way, you're rolling initiative at the end of combat, which is usually a time where where things kind of pause for a second anyway, as everybody kind of recovers and deals with whatever outcomes there are of the combat. So it's not nearly as disruptive to roll initiative at that point. Or you could even wait until a more opportune moment. But I just found that it's hard enough to remember to ask for initiative rolls at the end of combat if you're in the habit of doing it at the beginning. So if you if you don't do it then, if you don't have a definite time that you do it, it's going to be even more likely that you forget until the next encounter comes. So I just do it at the end of combat. Seems to work pretty well. All right, so step four is take turns. Every participant in the battle takes a turn in initiative order. And then step five, begin the next round and then rinse and repeat until the combat is over or the encounter is over. Because again, you don't necessarily just use initiative in combat. You can use it any time that you want. All right, so we need to talk a little bit about surprise. Surprise is a, a special case, and this is one of those things in the game that can be confusing to people, GMs and players, and especially can be confusing, I think even more so, to people who have experience with previous editions because surprise is not handled the same in 5th edition as it has been in some previous editions. So if you're familiar with another edition of D&D, don't assume that you understand how surprise works. It may be different in 5th edition. So this is how it works in 5th edition. So first off, you as the dungeon master decide if there's a chance that anybody might be surprised. And that's up to your judgment. Um, If you're running a a published module, oftentimes they will give you some guidelines on how to know if people are surprised or not. You might check passive perceptions, things like that. But it's just up to your judgment. You know, if it doesn't seem like there's any way that anybody could be surprised and you don't need to worry about surprise and you can go on to the next step, which is establishing positions and rolling initiative. So it says here, if neither side is trying to be stealthy or sneaky, then they automatically notice each other. Now I would clarify this a a bit more and say, as long as, you know, there's clear visibility and, and all those things, you know, there could be situations where no one's trying to be sneaky but there's still the possibility of surprise because maybe it's dark and it's obscured and there's a lot of loud noises. So, you know, unless you're really trying to be super observant, you might not notice someone even if they're not trying to be sneaky. So again, as a DM, you always use your best judgment. What makes sense? So usually the way it's going to work, if you decide that there's a chance for a surprise, which most often will be because people are trying to be sneaky, is those who are trying to be stealthy will make an active dexterity stealth roll that you will then compare to the passive perception of those who might be surprised. So in the situation of the player characters trying to sneak up on some goblins, say, you would have them roll dexterity stealth, and then you would compare those rolls to the passive perception of the goblins. Or another way of saying it is, 
the DC or difficulty of the player character's dexterity stealth roll would be equal to the passive perception of the goblins. If, on the other hand, it was a situation where the goblins are trying to sneak up on the PCs, then you would roll dexterity stealth for the goblins and you would compare it to the passive perception of the PCs. So it's you know important to note that that's the way it works. It's not a thing of the PCs always roll actively and you can compare to the passive score of the NPCs. That's not the way it's intended to work. Being stealthy is an active thing. You need to make a roll to do that. And usually perceiving something is, is a passive thing. So you just check against a passive perception to see if they notice something. And if you think about it, really, that, that makes sense. You know, let's think of the case of a player character who's on watch, right? So the player character has a two-hour shift on watch. And, you know, if you think about it, it makes a lot more sense if some goblins are trying to sneak up to just use the passive perception because making an active perception roll is an action. That is an action that takes place within a period of time, a round, which is six seconds. And so a player character actively rolling perception over two hours, that would be like how many perception rolls? Well, we said 10 rounds an hour. So that'd be 20 perception rolls. And I think if you just think about the player character making 20 perception rolls, it becomes clear to you why the the active perception idea doesn't really make sense. You know, even if you're on watch, even if you're the, the best on watch person in the world, you are not super hyper vigilant every second of every minute for, for two hours. There are going to be times that you're, you know, maybe scratching an itch or you're not paying as close attention as you were a few seconds ago. And a great way to represent that is just to use a passive score, which just shows how perceptive you are in general. You know, an active role when you roll perception is appropriate for when you are looking at something really intently over a span of, say, six seconds. Then a roll makes sense. Doing something for two hours, the passive score makes more sense. And also the other side of this is if you're asking for perception rolls, you've just given away the fact that there's something to perceive right? And in the old days of D&D before 5th edition, a lot of times dungeon masters would make perception rolls or spot checks or whatever it was in that edition behind the screen for the player characters just to avoid this problem of, oh, well, if I call for spot checks and everybody rolls really low, even though they didn't roll well enough to know anything's there, the players all know there's something there because I asked for the perception roll, right? So back in the old days, the way that we avoided that problem is in that situation, the DM would roll the spot check or the wisdom check or whatever it was for the player character behind the screen. And you would record whatever their bonuses were like at the beginning of the session, because again, asking them, what's your spot bonus kind of gives it away, right? Well, now in fifth edition, we have a more elegant solution for that. We don't have to make rolls for the players behind the screen. Instead, we can use their passive score, which you should know what the passive perception scores are for all the player characters at your table. So again, you don't have to give things away by asking, hey, what's your passive perception again? So that's what passive perception is for. All right, so first we, we decide, is it even possible for someone to be surprised? If it is, you compare stealth checks versus passive perception to determine if someone's surprised or not. 
So then let's say someone is surprised. How does that work? And again, this is something that's different from how it's been done in some previous editions. In some previous editions, we had this idea of a surprise round, which was this special round that happened first if if there were people that were surprised. And that is not the way it works in 5th edition. It's much simpler in 5th edition. And in fact, it's so simple in 5th edition that in the player's handbook, it is explained in two sentences. And those two sentences say, if you're surprised, you can't move or take an action on your first turn of the combat. And you can't take a reaction until that turn ends. A member of a group can be surprised even if the other members aren't. So the second sentence is just saying that it's not an all or nothing thing. So let's say you have the situation of the goblins sneaking up on the PCs and maybe the goblin stealth roll is good enough to beat some of the PCs passive perception, but not all of them. For instance, the elf ranger who is skilled in perception because she's an elf and also has a decent ranger or ranger bonus has a decent wisdom bonus because she's a ranger might have a high enough passive perception that the goblins can't sneak up on her. They don't roll well enough, but they do roll well enough to sneak up on the other PCs. So those other PCs are surprised the ranger isn't. So the same way if the PCs are trying to sneak up on the goblins, some of the goblins may be surprised, some of them may not. And that that's fine. And that's a nice thing about the way surprise works in 5th edition is you can have that situation and it doesn't make anything more complicated. So then the first sentence You know, let's unpack that a little bit. If you're surprised, you can't move or take an action on your first turn of the combat. And also, you can't take a reaction until that turn ends. So that means you determine who's surprised, who's not. You roll initiative. And if it has been decided that your character is surprised, when your first turn comes, you can't move, you can't take an action. Just, you know, basically when that turn comes, You you can't do anything because you're surprised. You also can't take a reaction until that turn ends. And some things you can do with a reaction are, for instance, make an opportunity attack or cast a spell like shield that uses a reaction casting time. So notice that says you can't make reactions until that turn ends. It does not say until the round ends. And this is something that can confuse people. So once it comes to your initiative in that first round, let's say you're surprised, it comes to your initiative, your turn in that round, you can't really do anything, you can't move, you can't take an action. However, once your turn is over and it goes to the next turn, you can at that point take a reaction. So let's say someone moves through your or moves out of your threatened area before your turn and you're surprised on that first round, you can't take an opportunity attack because you're surprised and your turn hasn't happened yet. But if someone moves out of your threatened area after your turn in that first round, you can take your reaction at that point. Or if someone attacks you and you have the shield spell, you could cast it if it's after your turn in that first round. And that's it. That's how surprise works. So you don't need to have a special surprise round. You just, as a GM, you just know who's surprised, who's not. When it comes to a character's turn, whether it's a player character or an NPC, if they're surprised, they don't act. They don't take an act or they don't move. They don't do anything. You just go on to the next person. And until you go beyond the surprise person's turn, they also can't take a reaction. It's that simple. 
Next, we have a little explanation of initiative. Initiative is super easy, super simple. For the most part, it's usually just a dexterity check. The player rolls d20, adds their dex bonus. The only time an initiative roll becomes something special beyond a dex check is if you have some kind of magic item or feat or ability or something that gives you some kind of bonus or maybe advantage on initiative. And on the character sheet, there's a special spot for your initiative. But most times it's just going to be your dex bonus. And if you have something that gives you a bonus to initiative, you'll know. Then everybody rolls initiative. You rank those numbers from highest to lowest, and that's the order everyone goes. Now it says here, if a tie occurs, so two characters roll the same initiative, the DM decides who goes first among the tied NPCs. So if it's NPCs, you as a GM, you just decide which one goes first, second, whatever. If it's player characters, it says the DM can decide the order if the tie is between a monster and a player character. Optionally, the DM can have the tied characters and monsters each roll a d20 to determine the order highest roll going first. Um, And then it also says that the players decide the order among their tied characters. So, you know, by the book, the way they say to do it is if you have NPCs that are tied, you just decide as DM which one goes first. If you have player characters that are tied, you just let them decide which go first. If you have player characters and NPCs that are tied, either you can decide which goes first or you can have everybody roll a d20 and determine it that way. That's not actually the way I do it. I go by dexterity. So if there's a tie, whether it's NPCs or player characters, I just have whoever has the higher dexterity gets to go first. That's just the way I do it. And if their dexterities are tied, then if it's NPCs or NPCs or PC, then then I choose who goes first. If it's PCs, they get to choose who goes first. So that's just the way I do it. At least <laughs> that's the way I do it if my players all know their dexterities. I've, I've run for some groups where when I try to do it that way, it, it kind of bogs things down because everybody has to look up what their dexterity is, especially online. It seems to bog things down more. So, you know, a lot of times when I'm running online, I just let the players decide between ties. And if it's a tie between NPC and a PC, I'll just either decide or or let the players go first. I don't know. It's however you want to do it. It doesn't really matter as long as you're consistent. All right. So now we have discussion of your turn. And, you know, this is something if you're teaching new players, you know, we talked about this in episode 144, teaching new players the game. You know, as soon as you get into a combat, you know, something that you really want to help them understand is what they can do during their turn. So with a new player, with a low level starting character, it's pretty simple for the most part. They're going to be able to move and they're going to be able to take an action on their turn. And it's that simple. You can decide whether to move first or take your action first. Your speed is going to tell you how far you can move in feet. And your action can be one of numerous different actions. And there's an actions in combat section coming up later where we'll go into what some of the different actions you can take are. Now, there are two other types of actions that you may get. There is the reaction, which we already briefly discussed. You can use your reaction to make an opportunity attack. And in general, that's about the only thing you can use your reaction for unless you have an ability or a spell or something that uses a reaction. So for instance, I already talked about the shield spell, which has a casting time of a reaction. So you can use your reaction to cast a shield spell. And an interesting point to make here 
is normally you use a reaction outside of your turn on someone else's turn, but you can use a reaction on your turn. So an example of this is let's say you're moving on your turn and as you're moving, you provoke an attack of opportunity. An NPC attacks you and would hit you and you can use your reaction to cast shield, even though it's on your turn. The other type of action you might have access to is the bonus action. And the bonus action, you can only use a bonus action if you have a skill or a feat or not a skill, sorry, a class feature or a feat or a spell or something like that that says you can use a bonus action. Unless you have something that says you can use a bonus action, you can't use bonus actions. So especially with beginning characters, a lot of times it's going to be action move. That's it. Once in a while, a reaction and then with certain specific characters, you might have possibilities for bonus actions at the beginning of play. For instance, you might start out playing a character who uses two weapons and then your off weapon attack you can use a bonus action for. So that's one way that a, a first level character could could possibly have a bonus action or their spells like healing word uses a bonus action. So so another interesting note here at the last paragraph of this your turn section here is it says you can forgo moving, taking taking an action, or doing anything at all on your turn. So you do have the option when it's your turn. If you don't know what to do, you could just do nothing. You could just say, I don't do anything, and that's it. Now, that's not a very smart thing to do. There are two better options to doing nothing on your turn. The first is you can consider taking the dodge action. And this is a great thing. So, so GMs, if you're running for new players or even experienced players, any players, and you're in combat and you ask them what they want to do and they don't know what to do, maybe because um, they're not sure what to do, or maybe you're in a situation where it's a negotiation and it looks like it might go south, but no one's drawn blades yet, so the player doesn't want to be the one to instigate something. Instead of them just wasting their turn and doing nothing, they can take the dodge action and they just say, I spend the round dodging and now no this is your action so they can still move and dodge and dodge is very simple they just say they're dodging and anyone who attacks them is at disadvantage so it's a very tactically smart thing to do when you don't know what to do or you don't have anything good that you can do or want to do you can always dodge and then the other possibility if you're not sure what to do is you can take the ready action and we'll discuss uh, in more detail a little bit later how ready works. But just for now, in, in a nutshell, you delay taking your action until later in the round if a certain thing happens, a certain trigger. But there are some limitations to ready, and we'll discuss that in a little bit. So just word of advice, if you have a player, they don't know what to do, they can't decide what to do in combat, suggest that they either dodge or ready in action. So for instance, the example of they're in a negotiation, it looks like it might go south. It's the player's turn. They don't want to be the one to turn this into a combat. So they don't want to do anything hostile, but they also don't want to get caught with their pants down. If things go south, they could ready an action and say something like, okay, if somebody attacks someone in my group, then I'm going to attack this character or I'm going to cast a spell. I'm going to cast mage armor or whatever. All right, so now we have bonus actions. Various class features, spells, and other abilities let you take an additional action on your turn called a bonus action. 
For example, the cunning action feature allows a rogue to take a bonus action. You can take a bonus action only when a special ability, spell, or other feature of the game states that you can do something as a bonus action. You otherwise don't have a bonus action to take. And a common question I see is, if I have a spell that has a casting time as a bonus action, can I cast it as an action? And the answer to that question is no. (laughs) Same thing, if you have something that's an action, you can't do it as a bonus action. They are explicit different things. So if you have something you can do as a bonus action, you cannot do it as an action, unless there's some other rule in the game that says that you can. So for instance, the healing word spell is a bonus action. You cannot use your action to cast healing word. You have to use your bonus action. And there are good reasons for that. It has to do with the economy of action in the game and how the balance is struck as far as how much you can do during a turn. And if you let player characters do things like cast holy word or healing word that are supposed to be a bonus action as an action, it's going to lead to them doing things that are broken and not intended. So that's a good thing to know. You can only take one bonus action on your turn, so you must choose which bonus action to use when you have more than one available. So for instance, the rogue with cunning action can use his bonus action to use cunning action or could use his bonus action to make an attack with his offhanded weapon, but he can't do both. You choose when to take a bonus action during your turn. Unless the bonus action's timing is specified, and anything that deprives you of your ability to take actions also prevents you from taking a bonus action. So that's pretty simple, right? The reaction is something you can do on someone else's turn. The bonus action has to happen on your turn, but you have fluidity as far as if you want to move and then take your action or take your bonus action, then move and take your, you know, as far as your move bonus action, action, unless there's a rule that says differently, you can do those in any order that you want on your turn. And also, it also makes sense that if there is something preventing you from taking actions, that is also going to prevent you from taking bonus actions. For instance, you're paralyzed or something. Other activities on your turn. Your turn can include a variety of flourishes that require neither your action nor your move. So here are some things that you can do during your turn that you don't have to spend an action or your move or bonus action or anything like that on. You can kind of do it for free. You can communicate however you are able through brief utterances and gestures as you take your turn. So I said before, you know, a lot of times it doesn't matter that a round is six seconds long. This is an area where it's it's good to remember both players and GMs that a round is six seconds long. Yes, you can, as part of your turn, say anything that you want to say, but just keep in mind that the turn itself, the whole round itself, rather, is only six seconds and your turn is only part of that round. So, you know, if the player character is trying to say more than they could realistically say in six seconds that, you know, you might want to curb that a bit. Also, technically, by the rules, you can only talk during your turn. So, you know, I'm usually not super strict about that. I will usually let PCs talk out a turn as long as the total of what they say isn't going to go over six seconds. But technically, by the rules, you can only talk during your turn. You can also interact with one object or feature of the environment for free during either your move or your action. So you get one free interaction with an object. You can take that either during your move or during your action, not both, one or the other. 
For example, you could open a door during your move as you stride toward a foe, or you could draw your weapon as part of the same action you use to attack. And that's a common question, you know, can I, can I draw my weapon and attack? And yes, you can, once, one weapon per round. So if you're using two weapons, unless you have a feat or something, and, and there is a, I think it's a feat that lets you draw two weapons instead of one, but unless you have some, some kind of ability that says that, you can only draw one weapon for free per round. So you're either going to have to spend your action to draw the second weapon, or you're just going to have one weapon to attack with on the first round. And then, yeah, it says if you want to interact with a second object, you need to use your action to do that. Some magic items and other special objects always require an action to use, as stated in their descriptions. So when it says you can use an object for free as part of your move or action, it's not talking about things like potions or wands or things like that. Because again, in their description, they're going to say, you know, it takes an action to use this thing. The DM might require you to use an action for any of these activities when it needs special care or when it presents an unusual obstacle. For instance, the DM could reasonably expect you to use an action to open a stuck door or turn a crank to lower a drawbridge. So again, it's DM's prerogative, what makes sense, what's reasonable, what's logical. You know, the, the rules don't let you do things that are impossible. So at the bottom of this page in a little text box, we have some examples of things that you could do with this free interaction with an object on your turn. So these are draw or sheath a sword. So one or the other, right? You can't um, sheath one weapon and pull out another one. Those, those would be two interactions. You could do that, but you'd have to use your action to do one of them. Now you can just drop something, right? So this is what you'll often see happen. Let's say I've, I've got my, my long sword out and I want to use my war hammer instead, I can just drop my long sword. Or, or a better example, let's say I have my longbow out. This is how it more often happens. I have my longbow out. Someone moves in the melee with me. So I want to drop my longbow and pull out my longsword. I can drop the longbow, pull out my longsword. That's fine. But I can't like put the longbow away and draw my longsword because that would be two interactions. But I can just drop it and then it lays wherever it falls. All right, so draw or sheath the sword is an example of an interaction you can do for free. Open or close a door. Withdraw a potion from your backpack. Pick up a dropped axe. Take a bobble from a table. Remove a ring from your finger. Stuff some food into your mouth. Plant a banner in the ground. Fish a few coins from your belt pouch. Drink all the ale in a flagon. Throw a lever or a switch. Pull a torch from a sconce. Take a book from a shelf you can reach, extinguish a small flame, don a mask, pull the hood of your cloak up and over your head. Now, again, there are exceptions to these. So, for instance, this one, pull a hood of a cloak up over your head. Um, I believe, and, and I don't have the DMG in front of me now, so don't quote me, but I believe the cloak of Elvenkind only works when you pull the hood over your head, but it states in the description of that magic item that it's an action to do that. So that's an exception to this general rule that says you can pull up your hood for free because you're activating a magic item. So the exception is in the description of the Cloak of Elvenkind, and it says it takes your action to do this. Another example of this is there are two things in here. You can withdraw a potion from your backpack as your free interaction and drink a flagon of ale as your free interaction 
I at first took this, I extrapolated from this and thought, well, if I can drink a flat flagon of ale, then I should also be able to drink a potion as a free interaction. But again, that's not the case because when you read about potions in the Dungeon Master's Guide, it tells you that drinking a potion takes an action. So again, that's a specific rule. Drinking a potion takes an action that overrides the general rule that says drinking a flagon of ale would be a free interaction. So those are good things to know. Some other examples, put your ear to a door, kick a small stone, turn a key in a lock, tap the door with a 10-foot pole, hand an item to another character. So again, put your ear to your to the door. It doesn't say you get to roll a perception roll, right? Because again, <laughs> rolling perception is an action. That would take your action, but just putting the, your ear to the door, you can do that. All right, so next we have reactions. And again, in a nutshell, if you have a spell or something that says it uses a reaction, then you can use your reaction to do that thing. And the other thing to note is you only have one reaction per turn or per round. So if you use a reaction, you can't use another reaction until you're the start of your next turn. Not the end of the round you're in, the start of your next turn. And it says a reaction is an instant response to a trigger of some kind, which can occur on your turn or someone else's. And again, an opportunity attack is something you can use your reaction for that we'll talk about more in a little bit. Next, we have movement and position. So as we said before, on your turn, you can move a distance up to your speed. Um, You don't have to move the full distance. You can move a portion of that. Your movement can include jumping, climbing, and swimming, or some of your move could be walking, some could be jumping, some could be swimming. So however you're moving, you deduct the distance of each part of your mood from, from your speed until it's used up or until you're done moving. And it refers you to chapter eight to see the particulars for jumping, climbing, and swimming. But I can tell you right now, in a nutshell, Uh, those forms of movement take double your movement to go a given amount. So if you're jumping, climbing, or swimming, or well, no, jumping is its own thing. It has its own little system. But climbing and swimming, if you want to climb five feet or swim five feet, it takes 10 feet of your movement, unless you have a climb or a swim speed. Or uh, rogues, uh, the thief rogues, get the ability to climb at full speed. So again, you know, if you have a specific ability that beats that general rule, then you use a specific rule. But otherwise, climbing or swimming takes twice as much movement. You can also break up your movement. So, you know, if you have 30 feet of movement, you could move 10 feet, take your action and or your bonus action, then move 20 feet. Or did I say that right? (laughs) You know, it's got to add up to your movement. So, So you could... If you have a 30 feet move, you could move 10 feet, take your action, move 10 feet, take your bonus action, move 10 feet and be done or however you want to split it up, which is cool. I I remember in third edition, you had to have a special feat called spring attack to be able to do that. Now everybody can do that. You don't need to take a feat, which is awesome. You can also move between attacks. So if you in some somehow have multiple attacks that you can take, whether that's two weapons or your For instance, a higher level fighter that has multiple attacks, you can move in between those attacks if you want. So it says, for example, a fighter who can make two attacks with the extra attack feature and who has a speed of 25 feet could move 10 feet, make an attack, move 15 feet, and then attack again. So easy peasy. And then it has a discussion here if you have different speeds. So you might have a fly speed or a swim speed or a climb speed. 
That could be, you know, a racial ability. So if you're an Aarakocra, you, you've got a fly speed or it could be due to a spell or a magic item or whatever. So it says if you have more than one speed, such as your walking speed and a flying speed, you can switch back and forth between your speeds during your move. Whenever you switch, subtract the distance you've already moved from the new speed. The result determines how much farther you can move. If the result is zero or less, you can't use the new speed during the current move. For example, if you have a speed of 30 and a flying speed of 60 because a wizard casts a fly spell on you, you could fly 20 feet, then walk 10 feet, and then leap into the air to fly 30 feet more. So again, it's pretty easy, makes sense. Difficult terrain is uh, something, you know, you should always keep in mind that as a DM, is there a reason that there would be difficult terrain? It can always make things more interesting. Every foot of movement in difficult terrain costs an extra foot. This rule is true even if multiple things in a space count as difficult terrain. So there's not like super difficult terrain. There's just, it's either difficult terrain or it's not. Low furniture, rubble, undergrowth, steep stairs, snow, and shallow bogs are examples of difficult terrain. The space of another creature, whether hostile or not, also counts as difficult terrain. Then we have being prone. So you can drop prone without using any of your speed. So you can hit the deck for free. If you're already prone and you want to stand up, then it costs half of your movement to do so. So if your speed is 30 feet and you're lying on your butt and you want to stand up, it's going to cost you 15 feet of that 30 feet movement to stand up. It costs half your speed to stand up or half the movement that you have. If you want to move while you're prone, you don't want to stand up. You just want to move. You can crawl or you could use magic like teleportation. Each foot of movement while crawling costs one extra foot. Crawling one foot in difficult terrain, therefore, four costs three feet of movement. Because again, you know, it, it costs an extra foot because you're crawling and it costs an extra foot because it's difficult terrain. So if you're crawling through difficult terrain, you have a speed of 30, you could only crawl 10 feet. Moving around other creatures. You can move through a non-hostile creature space. So, you know, if you need to get... If you're, you know, this really only matters if you're using miniatures and, and stuff like that. Um, if you're doing theater of the mind, you know, you're probably not going to be so granular with positioning that this is really going to come up much. But if you're using a grid and you need to get on the other side of uh, uh, one of your buddies, you can do that because they're non-hostile. It is considered difficult terrain. So that square that your friend is in is difficult terrain and it takes more movement to get through it. So, you know, if you're just moving through your buddy's square, that's five feet. It would cost you 10 feet of your movement to, to move through that square. Whether a creature is a friend or an enemy, you can't willingly end your move in its space. If you leave a hostile creature's reach during your move, you provoke an opportunity attack as explained later in the chapter. Now, again, you know, there are specific things in the game that, that may give you the ability to move through a hostile creature's space. But in general, you can't. You can only do that with non-hostile creatures. Flying movement. Flying creatures enjoy many benefits of mobility, but they must also deal with the danger of falling. If a flying creature is knocked prone, has its speed reduced to zero, or is otherwise deprived of the ability to move, the creature falls, unless it has the ability to hover or is being held aloft by magic, such as the fly spell. And falling damage is 1d6 per 10 feet. So... Yeah, you know, some people think that flying is overpowered. I don't think so because there's a lot of risk, especially with low level characters, 
that are flying because you could easily die <laughs> if you're flying and you get knocked to zero hit points or somehow your speed is reduced to zero or you're quote knocked prone you fall you could easily take enough damage from the fall to either knock yourself out or even kill yourself so i think that's a, a pretty good uh balance for the little bit of benefit that you may get from from being able to fly there's some risk involved as there should be all right next we have creature size and you know how much space different creatures take Again, this is really only going to matter a whole lot if you're using miniatures and a grid. So small and medium creatures take a five foot by five foot space, which is going to be a square on your grid. Tiny creatures take two and a half by two and a half feet, which is like a quarter of the square, basically. And then large takes 10 foot by 10 foot. Huge takes 15 foot by 15 foot and gargantuan 20 foot by 20 foot. So unlike Pathfinder in 5th edition, all the spaces creatures take up are square. So I, I think in uh, Pathfinder, like a horse is a large creature, but it, it takes up two squares by one square, not two by two. But d and is a little bit more simplified than that, which is fine by me. A creature's space is the area and feet that it effectively controls in combat, not an expression of its physical dimensions. So yeah, you know, if you, you've got a giant that's, taken up a 10 foot by 10 foot square it's not saying that he's completely filling up that square it's just saying that he is in control of that square or those squares i should say a typical medium creature isn't five feet wide for example but it does control a space a space that wide if a medium hobgoblin stands in a five foot wide doorway other creatures can't get through unless the hobgoblin lets them again makes total sense Another interesting thing to note here, a creature's space also reflects the area it needs to fight effectively. For that reason, there's a limit to the number of creatures that can surround another creature in combat. Assuming medium combatants, eight creatures can fit in a five-foot radius around another one. So again, if you're using miniatures in a grid, I mean, the grid's going to tell you how many people you can put around a character. But if you're doing theater of the mind, this is a nice thing to remember that the the most creatures assuming everybody's in five foot squares the most creatures that could surround a character is eight so it's good to know as long as they're smaller medium sized because larger creatures take up more space fewer of them can surround a creature if five large creatures crowd around a medium or smaller one there's little room for anyone else in contrast as many as 20 medium creatures can surround a gargantuan one so yeah you know there's some rules of thumb if you're doing theater of the mind but um, yeah, I, I have seldom needed rolls of thumb like that. So um, on this next page here, we're on page 192 now, there's a square about the variant playing on a grid. I'm not really going to go into this. This is all pretty standard stuff, pretty easy to figure out. If you're using a grid or you want to use a grid, you're going to want to check this out, how this all works. Most of it's pretty straightforward. I will just point out that this is a variant rule. So the assumption in fifth edition is that you are not using a grid so that's good to keep in mind don't think that you have to use a grid it's a variant squeezing into a smaller space a creature can squeeze through a space that is large enough for a creature one size smaller than it thus a large creature can squeeze through a passage that's only five feet wide while squeezing through a space a creature must spend one extra foot for every foot it moves there and it has disadvantage on attack rolls and dexterity saving throws Attack rolls against the creature 
have advantage while it's in this small space. So pretty straightforward. So I just want to point out that, you know, sometimes as a shorthand, we tend to think of things that inc- that decrease your movement, like difficult terrain. We tend to think at, in multipliers, like for instance, difficult terrain, you tend to think, oh, it's going to take twice as much movement to do it. You know, so, so if you're going 10 feet through difficult terrain, it costs 20 feet. And thinking in the multipliers is a fine shorthand when you only have one thing limiting your movement. But as soon as you have multiple things limiting movement, like let's say you're trying to squeeze through a small space and it's difficult terrain and you're crawling, then you you really want to not think about multipliers and think about it the way the rules actually describe it, where each of those things takes an extra foot of movement. Because if you think about it in multipliers, you're going to get confused and you're going to end up with the wrong answer. So in that example I just gave, let's say you have 30 foot movement, you're squeezing through squeezing through a small space. So each foot of movement is going to cost one extra foot for that. It's difficult terrain, so that's another extra foot for two. And you're crawling, which is another extra foot for three. So every foot of movement you move crawling through that difficult terrain small space is going to cost three extra feet of movement. So each foot of movement will cost you four. So with a 30 speed, you know, 30 divided by four would be seven. The, the, the most uh, feet you could move would be seven feet, and that would take 28 feet of your movement. And at that point, you, you wouldn't have enough to, to go any further. So just keep that in mind. It's fine to think of it in terms of multipliers if you just have one thing that's applying. Like difficult terrain, you can think, okay, it takes twice as much movement. But as soon as you're stacking more than one of those things together, it, it's much easier and um, will work a lot better for you if you think in extra feet per foot. We all use dice, but sometimes we need a dice upgrade. That's where Easy Roller Dice comes in. These guys have 10 different gunmetal dice sets to choose from, and each set comes in its very own leatherette display and storage box. These all-metal dice make any dice collection better, and they're shiny. So make sure and go to easyrollerdice.com and use my coupon code GMJ and you'll get to take 10% off your purchase. Can't beat that with a stick. All right, so now we have the section actions in combat. So when you're not in combat or you're not tracking initiative, you know, you can be more loosey-goosey about stuff. You can be more fluid. You don't have to worry about rigidly defining things. But in combat, it's very useful to define things. And a lot of rules questions that come up can be answered by just keeping in mind what these different actions are and what's involved with these different actions. And a lot of the questions I see people ask Jeremy Crawford on Twitter, they wouldn't have to ask him if they would just refer to this and understand what kind of action they're talking about. So the first type of action you can take in combat is the attack action. With this action, you make one melee or ranged attack. Certain features, such as the extra attack feature of the fighter, allow you to make more than one attack with this action, but you are still taking the attack action. Cast a spell is another type of action or another action you can take in combat. 
Each spell has a casting time, which specifies whether the caster must use an action, a reaction, minutes, or even hours to cast the spell. And I'm not sure why they didn't list this, but another possible casting time is a bonus action. I have first printing, so I'm going to assume in later printings they added that. (laughs) So it should really read, each spell has a casting time, which specifies whether the caster must use an action, a reaction, a bonus action, minutes, or even hours to cast a spell. Casting a spell is therefore not necessarily an action, right? If it's a reaction, then it's a reaction. If it's a bonus action, then it's a bonus action. Most spells do have a casting time of one action. So a spell caster often uses his or her action in combat to cast such a spell. And then it tells us to see chapter 10 for more about casting spells. And we'll be talking about that in a later episode. So right here, these two actions attack and cast a spell. A lot of times questions people ask or things people are confused about can be resolved by just asking yourself, am I using an attack action or am I using a cast a spell action? So for instance, people will wonder if I'm casting a spell that has me make an attack like Shocking Grasp, for example. If we read Sh- Shocking Grasp, it says make a melee spell attack against the target. So that is a melee spell attack. It has a casting time of one action. So even though it says you're making a melee spell attack, the action that you're taking is the cast a spell action, not the attack action. So someone will ask, okay, if I'm a multi-class fighter wizard and I have the extra attack feature as a fighter that lets me make two attacks, can I cast Shocking Grasp and then make my second attack? And the answer is no. (laughs) You only get to use multi-attack when you're taking the attack action. And when you're casting Shocking Grasp, you're taking the cast the spell action. And I have seen so many questions asked that resolve down to that. Are you taking the attack action or are you taking the cast a spell action? Because they're two different things. And I'll give you a hint. If you're doing something with a spell, you're probably taking the cast a spell action. Even if that spell takes tells you to make some kind of an attack, it's still the cast a spell action. All right, next we have dash. When you take the dash action, you gain extra movement for the current round. The increase equals your speed after applying any modifiers. So it's basically the double move from third edition. So you get a move in your turn where you can move up to your speed. And then if you want, during your action, you can take the dash action to move your speed again. With a speed of 30 feet, for example, you can move up to 60 feet on your turn if you dash. So you get 30 feet of movement from your move and another 30 feet from your dash. But again, that's taking your action to dash. Any increase or decrease to your speed changes this additional movement by the same amount. If your speed of 30 feet is reduced to 15 feet, for instance, you can move up to 30 feet this turn if you dash. So 15 feet with your move, 15 feet with the dash. Really simple. Disengage is another action. I always forget what this action is called. I'm like, is it withdraw? Is it disengage? It's disengage is what it's called. Um, If you take the disengage action, your movement doesn't provoke opportunity attacks for the rest of the turn. So, you know, you might be in a situation in combat where where you're engaged in melee with people. You want to move somewhere or maybe you're not engaged, but you want to move somewhere and the path that you need to take will result in you invoking attacks of opportunity. You can spend your action to disengage 
and then take your move and any movement you do will not invoke a tax of opportunity. So that's how you run away if you need to run away. Dodge. I talked about this earlier. When you take the dodge action, you focus entirely on avoiding attacks. And again, this is your action. So you still get your move, which is separate from your action. You also would still get a bonus action or a reaction if you had something you could do with those. So back to dodge, the action. Until the start of your next turn, any attack roll made against you has disadvantage if you can see the attacker. And you make dexterity saving throws with advantage. You lose this benefit if you are incapacitated, as explained in Appendix A, or if your speed drops to zero. So if something happens to you that incapacitates you or reduces your speed to zero, then you don't get the benefit of dodging. But barring that, you can dodge and everybody attacking you has disadvantage and you get advantage on dexterity saving throws. So usually if you're wanting to get out of combat and you don't want to invoke attacks of opportunity, the smart thing to do is to take the disengage action and then use your your move to, to get out of there. But you could, if for some reason you wanted to, instead take the dodge action and move out of there. And then you're still going to invoke attacks of opportunity. But if you do, they're going to be at disadvantage to hit you. So usually disengage is going to be the better way to go. But there might be a specific situation where for some reason you want to dodge instead. For instance, you're worried more about more than just the attacks of opportunity. You're worried about other attacks that might be made against you. Then you might want to dodge instead of disengage. Help is another action you can take during combat. You can lend your aid to another creature in the completion of a task. When you take the help action, the creature you aid gains advantage on the next ability check it makes to perform the task you are helping with, provided that it makes a check before the start of your next turn. Alternatively, you can aid a friendly creature in attacking a creature within five feet of you. You faint, distract the target, or in some other way team up to make your ally's attack more effective. If your ally attacks the target before your next turn, the first attack roll is made with advantage. So the first roll, if they have multiple attacks, they only get advantage on the first one. But help is another great thing that you can do, especially if you're not sure what else to do. Hide is an action you can take in combat. When you take the hide action, you make a dexterity stealth check in an attempt to hide, following the rules in Chapter 7 for hiding. If you succeed, you gain certain benefits as described in the Unseen Attackers and Targets section later in this chapter. And again, when I discussed Chapter 7 on the show, I talked about the rules of hiding. But in a nutshell, you can't hide from someone who can see you. So usually in combat, people can see you, they're aware of you. So even though hide is an action you can take in combat, you're not necessarily always going to be able to hide in combat. So keep that in mind. And then we have the ready action. So this is, you know, another thing you can do if you're not sure what you want to do or if you want to wait until something happens to do something. So first you decide what the perceivable circumstance will be that will trigger your reaction. So when you ready an action, there's a cost to that because you're using your action to ready the action and then you're going to use your reaction to actually take the readied action. And to do that, you have to decide on a trigger, something that will happen that will trigger your readied reaction. And it has to be something you can perceive, something in world. It can't be a metagame thing like the ogre drops the five hit points. It has to be something in the world, in the story that your character can see or perceive in some way. 
So examples of triggers could be, if the cultist steps on the trap door, I'll pull the lever that opens it. So that's the other side of this. You, you have to define a trigger that will trigger the reaction and you have to say what the reaction will be. You can't say, when someone enters the room, I will cast a spell. You have to be specific and say what spell you're going to cast. When someone enters the room, I will cast magic missile at that person. So you choose a trigger and then you choose what your reaction will be. That can either be an action or it can be moving your speed. Another example of a trigger could be if the goblin steps next to me, I move away. So trigger reaction. You have to declare both on your turn using your action. So when the trigger occurs, you can either take your reaction right after the trigger finishes or ignore the trigger. So you do have the option to forgo taking that reaction. You don't have to do it. Remember that you only get one reaction per turn or per round. Now, there's a a special case here if you're talking about using this to cast a spell. When you ready a spell, you cast it as normal, but hold its energy, which you release with your reaction when the trigger occurs. To be readied, a spell must have a casting time of one action, and holding on to the spell's magic requires concentration. If your concentration is broken, the spell dissipates without taking effect. For example, if you are concentrating on the web spell and ready magic missile, your web spell ends. And if you take damage before you release magic missile with your reaction, your concentration might be broken. Now, something that is not clarified here, but I believe has been clear. I know it's been clarified somewhere. I think it's been clarified in Sage Advice, and I think it is in the errata for the player's handbook, is if you ready a spell, it talks here about how when you ready the spell, you are actually holding the energy, and it's like you're concentrating on the spell, and that if that concentration is broken, you lose the spell, and it doesn't happen. Well, the other part of this is if you ready a spell and either the trigger doesn't happen before your next turn or the trigger happens, but you decide not to cast a spell, you still lose that spell slot as if you cast a spell. In either case, if the trigger doesn't happen and you never cast a spell or the trigger happens and you decide not to cast a spell, you still lose that spell slot. That's how it works, kids. So yeah, there, there's some interesting things here. So, you know, if you want to ready a spell, um, that's concentrating on a spell. So if you're already concentrating on a spell, you're going to lose that other spell you're concentrating on. And then in the time between your action, when you ready the spell and while you're waiting for the trigger to take the reaction of casting the spell, if something like hits you and does damage and you fail that constitution save to hold the concentration, you lose that spell and, and you don't get to use it on your when the trigger happens and then the the final thing is if you end up not casting that spell for some reason you still lose the spell slot as if you cast it so you know there are prices that you pay to ready actions and and that's very intentional that was a very intentional design decision that they did partly to keep the pacing of the game fast-paced and to minimize the load on the GM and the players trying to remember who's where in initiative. Because you play games like Pathfinder where people can basically change their initiative and it's a mess and it just slows things down and they didn't want that in 5th edition. So you can ready an action and kind of delay. You don't delay your turn because you're still going on the same, you know, in subsequent rounds, you will still go on the same initiative that you rolled 
But during that one turn, you can ready and, and delay, but there's a cost because you're you're giving up, you, you're using both your action and your reaction to do that. And if you're a spellcaster, there, there's a bit of risk that you could end up losing that spell slot without actually getting to use the spell. And if you're concentrating on another spell, you're going to lose that other spell that you're concentrating. So, you know, it's something you, you have to use some strategies, some tactics. You know, you got to decide what do you want to do. All right. Another action you can take is search. Depending on the nature of your search, the DM might have you make a wisdom perception check or an intelligence investigation check. Use an object is another action. You normally interact with an object while doing something else, such as when you draw a sword as part of an attack, which we just discussed a little while ago. When an object requires your action for its use, you take the use an object action. This action is also useful when you want to interact with more than one object on your turn. And uh, finally, we have a little section here on improvising an action. Um, You might want to do things not covered by these actions, like breaking down doors, intimidating enemies, sensing weakness and magical defenses, calling for a parlay with a foe. The only limits to the actions you can attempt are your imagination and your character's ability scores. See the descriptions of the ability scores in Chapter 7 for more. When you describe an action not detailed elsewhere in the rules, the DM tells you whether that action is possible and what kind of role you need to make, if any, to determine success or failure. And a good rule of thumb is if the player wants to do something that involves making a role, some kind of check, it should take an action. Whether that's I want to sense motive to see if, you know, this person is lying or I want to roll perception to see if I can notice this thing, that takes an action. They shouldn't get to do that and do an, a reg, another action, you know. You only get one action per round. All right, now we have discussion on making an attack and whether that's a melee attack, range attack, spell attack, they, they're all resolved the same way. You choose a target. You determine your modifiers, you make the roll, and you resolve the attack. Pretty straightforward. So you make your attack roll, you roll your d20, you add modifiers. If it meets or beats the armor class, then the attack hits. So as far as modifiers to your attack roll, the two most common are ability modifiers. So a melee weapon is usually going to be strength or might be dexterity if it's a finesse weapon. Ranged weapon attacks usually use dexterity. Unless it's a thrown weapon, then you can use strength. Spell attacks that, that use an attack roll will use your spell ability modifier. So if you're a wizard, you're going to use your intelligence bonus. If you're a cleric, you're going to use your wisdom bonus. And then your other common modifier to attack rolls is your proficiency bonus, which usually when you make an attack, you're going to be making the, an attack that you're proficient with. But, you know, Exceptions do exist, so maybe you're using a weapon you're not proficient with, then you wouldn't get your proficiency bonus. But if you're a wizard making a spell attack, then yeah, you get your proficiency bonus. And here we have the special case with attack rolls of rolling a natural 1 or 20. So when you roll a 20 on the DT on the D20 roll and it's an attack roll, the attack hits regardless of the target's armor class. In addition, the attack is a critical hit. So again, that's only attack rolls, not saving throws, not ability checks, not anything else, just attack rolls. A 20 automatically hits and is a critical hit. 
On the flip side, a natural one on the D20 is always a miss. Even if your bonuses would be enough to hit the armor class, it's still a miss. Natural one on the D20 with an attack roll. Again, that's only attack rolls, not saving throws, not skill checks, not anything else, just attack rolls. Next, we have unseen attackers and targets. When you attack a target that you can't see, you have disadvantage on the attack roll. This is true whether you're guessing the target's location or you're targeting a creature you can hear but not see. Now, this is important here. People forget about this or or don't realize this. If the target isn't in the location you've targeted, you automatically miss. But the DM typically just says that the attack missed, not whether you guessed the target's location correctly. So example, it's dark. You can't see. You don't have dark vision. There's no light and you are (laughs) trying to attack something. First of all, you have to guess where that thing is. Okay, so if you're using a grid, this is a situation where it's a little bit easier with a grid. Well, in some ways it's easier, in some ways it's harder. It's easier for the player to tell the the DM where they're guessing the thing is. Um, You would point to the square. So so if it's a melee attack, you're going to point to one of the squares around your character If it's a range or a spell attack, you're going to point to the square where you think the thing is that you're targeting. You then roll, make the attack roll with disadvantage. If the thing is where you guessed it was, then you roll with a disadvantage. And and if you hit, you hit. (laughs) If it's not where you guessed it was, well, the DM's still going to ask you to roll for with disadvantage because the DM doesn't want to let you know that you guessed incorrectly. But even if you roll 20, you don't hit because it's not there. Again, you can't do the impossible no matter how good you roll. So, you know, if you're doing theater of the mind and and you're in melee, DM might be due tack in front of you, behind you, to the left, to the right. You know, you have to guess. If you guess wrong, then it doesn't matter what you roll, you're going to miss. So that's a good thing to remember. Ranged attacks. You can make ranged attacks only against targets within a specified range. If a ranged attack, such as one made with a spell, has a single range, you can't attack a target beyond this range. And that's how usually spells work is, you know, it has a range of 120 feet. So if it's farther than 120 feet away, you you can't attack it. Some ranged attacks, such as those made with a longbow or a shortbow, have two ranges. The smaller number is the normal range, and the larger number is the long range. Your attack roll has disadvantage when your target is beyond normal range and you can't attack a target beyond long range. So that small number, if they're that distance or closer to you, it's a normal attack roll. The large number is your maximum range. So if it's if they're a distance greater than that small number, but equal to or less than the large number, then you can attack them, but you have disadvantage. And then if they're beyond the large number in feet away from you, then you can't attack them at all. Really simple. Range attacks in close combat. Aiming a range attack is more difficult when a foe is next to you. When you make a range attack with a weapon, a spell, or some other means, you have disadvantage on the attack roll if you are within five feet of a hostile creature who can see you and who isn't incapacitated. So there you go. Easy peasy. Pretty straightforward. So when we have discussion of melee attacks, really straightforward. Usually as a player character, you're going to have a reach of five feet, but some monsters and some weapons uh, can have a range greater than 10 feet or, or a range, a reach. So 
If you have a, a monster that has a 10 foot reach, then they can attack something that's within 10 feet of them instead of five feet. Pretty straightforward. Next, we have opportunity attacks. These are very simple in fifth edition. You can make an opportunity attack when a hostile creature that you can see moves out of your reach. It's just that simple. Hostile creature, you can see them. They move out of your reach. You get an opportunity attack. To make the opportunity attack, you use your reaction to make one melee attack against the provoking creature. So this uses your reaction. So if you're holding your reaction or you're holding your action, you readied your action and someone invokes an opportunity attack on you or from you, then you have to decide, do I want to spend my reaction to make this opportunity attack or do I want to save it in case the trigger goes off so I can make my readied action? So can't have more than one in the round. One reaction, that's all you get. The attack interrupts the provoking creature's movement occurring right before the creature leaves your reach. This isn't saying that it stops the movement. It's just saying that your opportunity attack happens before they get out of your reach because otherwise you could never make an opportunity attack. You can avoid provoking an opportunity attack by using the disengage action, which we already talked about. You also don't provoke an opportunity attack when you teleport or when someone or something moves you without using your movement, action, or reaction. For example, you don't provoke an opportunity attack if an explosion hurls you out of a foe's reach or if gravity causes you to fall past an enemy. Really easy, really straightforward. Two-weapon fighting. When you take the attack action and attack with a light melee weapon that you're holding in one hand, you can use a bonus action to attack with a different light melee weapon that you're holding in the other hand. So I said, you know, other than some specific exceptions, you know, most first level characters aren't going to have bonus actions. So this is one way that you can have a bonus action at, at any level is you can use two weapons as long as they're both light melee weapons. You don't add your ability modifier to the damage of the bonus attack unless that modifier is negative. If either weapon has the thrown property, you can throw the weapon instead of making a melee attack with it. So you can't two-weapon fight with crossbows, <laughs> but you can two-weapon fight with hand axes and throw them if you want to do that. I think hand axes are light weapons. Daggers for sure are. So you could two-weapon fight with daggers and throw your daggers. Grappling. When you want to grab a creature or wrestle with it, you can use the attack action to make a special melee attack, a grapple. If you're able to make multiple attacks with the attack action, this attack replaces one of them. The target of your grapple must be no more than one size larger than you, and it must be within your reach. Using at least one free hand, you try to seize the target by making a grapple check, which is a strength athletics check contested by the target's strength athletics or dexterity acrobatics check. The target chooses the ability to use. If you succeed, you subject the target to the grappled condition, see Appendix A, the condition specifies the things that end it, and you can release the target whenever you like, no action required. So grappling is so much simpler than it has been in previous editions. Uh, you just make this, this special attack roll that you use your strength athletics to make a check, and the person you're trying to grapple can either use strength athletics or dexterity acrobatics, whichever they're better at, to try to resist the grapple. If you beat their roll, you grapple them. And remember, you know, we have a general rule for ties in contests that states when there's a tie in contest in a contest, 
the situation remains the same. So in this instance, you know, people might wonder, well, what if I make my grapple check and they make their check to avoid it and we roll the same number? Well, the situation before the check is the target is not grappled. So if you tie, the target is still not grappled. You have to beat their check. So let's go ahead and, and fast forward to the grappled condition since we're talking about grappling and see uh, what that's all about. So once you succeed in grappling someone, they gain the grappled condition, which means a grappled creature's speed, a grappled creature's speed becomes zero and it can't benefit from any bonus to its speed. The condition ends if the grappler is incapacitated. And then we could see the incapacitated condition, but we're not going to do that right now. The condition also ends if an effect removes the grappled creature from the reach of the grappler or grappling effect, such as when a creature is hurled away by the Thunderwave spell. So super, super simple. So basically it reduces their speed to zero. All right, so now we have escaping a grapple. A grappled creature can use its action to escape. To do so, it must succeed on a strength athletics or dexterity acrobatics check contested by your strength athletics check. So a good rule of thumb to remember, if you're the one grappling someone, you're always using strength athletics. The person you're trying to grapple, whether they're trying to avoid being grappled in the first place or they're trying to escape, they always get to choose between strength athletics or dexterity acrobatics, but you always have to use strength athletics even when they're trying to escape. And again, our general rule for ties in a contest is the situation remains the same as it was. So in this situation where you've grappled someone and now they're trying to escape, if you both tie on the check, then the situation remains as it was, which was they're grappled, so they're still grappled. They didn't escape. Very simple. And finally, we have moving a grappled creature. When you move, you can drag or carry the grappled creature with you, but your speed is halved unless the creature is two or more sizes smaller than you. So simple. So much easier than Pathfinder or 3rd Edition. Oh my gosh. Thank you, wizards. So, you know, you might, the, the first time someone wants to grapple in your campaign, it, it might bog things down for a little bit while, while you figure this out. But once this comes up once or twice in the game, people are going to remember how this works. You know, it seemed like 3rd Edition Pathfinder, every time something or someone wanted to grapple, it just destroyed the pacing and, and now we have to figure out how grappling works all over again because it was so complicated this is easy enough like you know once you've used it a few times you you can remember how it works all right next we have shoving a creature using the attack action you can make a special melee attack to shove a creature either to knock it prone or push it away from you if you're able to make multiple attacks with the attack action this attack replaces one of them the target of your shove must be no more than one size larger than you, and it must be within your reach. You make a strength athletics check contested by the target's strength athletics or dexterity acrobatics. If you win the contest, you either knock the target prone or push it five feet away from you. And it doesn't say this, but you get to choose which you want to do. And again, this works exactly the same as grappling. So you're rolling strength athletics, and the person you're trying to shove gets to choose between strength athletics or dexterity acrobatics, which makes both of these easier to remember because they both work the same way. And again, the same general rule for ties and contests applies. If you both tie on your checks, then the situation remains the same as it was before, which in this case means the person is not shoved. Now we have cover. And again, this has been simplified from previous editions. 
Walls, trees, creatures, and other obstacles can provide cover during combat, making a target more difficult to harm. A target can benefit from cover only when an attack or other effect originates on the opposite side of the cover. Makes perfect sense, right? There are three degrees of cover. If a target is behind multiple sources of cover, only the most protective degree of cover applies. The degrees aren't added together. For example, if a target is behind a creature that gives half cover and a tree trunk that gives three quarters cover, the target has three quarters cover. Really simple, right? Easier way to say it is cover doesn't stack with itself. All right, so first we have half cover. A target with half cover gets a plus two bonus to armor class and dexterity saving throws. So simple. Plus two AC, plus two dex saves. A target has half cover if an obstacle blocks at least half of its body. The obstacle might be a low wall, a large piece of furniture, a narrow tree trunk, or a creature, whether that creature is an enemy or a friend. So the whole, you know, firing a bow in the melee thing, there are creatures between you and your target, you can assume that they have half cover and increase their armor class by two. Also, if you're throwing a spell at them that they get a dex save to avoid and they have half cover, they get to add two to their dex save. Next, we have three quarters cover. Target with three quarters cover gets a plus five bonus to armor class and dexterity saving throws. So it works the same way, just plus five bonus instead of plus two. A target has three quarters cover if about three quarters of it is covered by an obstacle. The obstacle might be a portcullis, an arrow slit, or a thick tree trunk. And there might also be times in combat where you rule as a, as a DM that firing in the melee, you know, a person might have three quarters cover, especially if they're like a small creature, like a halfling, <laughs> and they're behind a bunch of medium or large creatures. You, you might say, hey, they're, they're getting three quarters cover instead of half cover, um, in which case they get plus five to their armor class and reflex reflex sorry dexterity saving throws and then finally we have total cover a target with total cover can't be targeted directly by an attack or a spell although some spells can reach such a target by including it within an area of effect a target has total cover if it is completely concealed by an obstacle so i will point out that you know again there are general rules that supersede this specific rule so for instance the spell sacred flame which is a an evocation cantrip says flame-like radiance descends on a creature that you see within range. The target must succeed on a dexterity saving throw or take 1d8 radiant damage. The target gains no benefit from cover for this saving throw. So this includes total cover. So this is an instance where you could target a creature with sacred flame, even if it has total cover and it doesn't get any bonus to its save or anything. And, and another thing to point out, and we'll talk more about this uh, when we get into the magic chapter, but you don't need to see a target to target it with a spell unless the spell explicitly says you do. So Sacred Flame does not say that you need to see the target. So they can be behind total cover, you can't see them, and you can still hit them with Sacred Flame and they don't get any kind of bonus to their saving throw. How cool is that? Pretty nice little cantrip. This is Matthew Colville, and you're listening to Game Master's Journey. I want to give a quick shout out to the patrons of Starwalker Studios. The support of the patrons makes this show possible. If you enjoy Game Master's Journey and you'd like to give a little back, becoming a patron is a great way to do so. Patrons get some cool perks like game material I make for Primordia and access to a special monthly podcast I produce just for the patrons. 
I'd also like to give a huge shout out and thank you to my tier four patron, Mr. Steve Strickland. Let's hear it for Steve. Thank you so much, Steve, and thank you to all the patrons. You can find out more about becoming a patron by clicking on the Patreon button at the top of the show notes at starwalkerstudios.com. All right, now we have damage and healing. So we have a bit on hit points. This is really straightforward. Um, the only thing to point out here is that, you know, when you take damage, you lose hit points and you can't go below zero hit points. There are no negative hit points in fifth edition and losing hit points has no impact on your character's abilities until you reach zero hit points. So it's kind of a weird thing with the game, but you can be at one hit point and you're just as effective as you are when you're at full hit points. Next, we have discussion of damage rolls. Again, these are pretty straightforward. You're going to roll whatever dice the spell or weapon tells you to roll. You're going to add any modifiers that apply. So if you're using a weapon, um, you're going to add your ability modifier. It's going to be strength or dexterity uh, to the damage dice of the weapon that you roll. A spell, you usually will not add an ability modifier to the damage unless the spell tells you to or you have a class ability that tells you that you get to add your modifier. If you have a spell or other effect that deals damage to more than one target at the same time, roll the damage once for all of them. For example, when a wizard casts Fireball or a cleric casts Flame Strike, the spell's damage is rolled once for all creatures caught in the blast. And I'm sure this is partly just to speed things up because it would be ridiculous if you had to roll your fireball damage separately for every person in the fireball. That would just be insane. Critical hits. When you score a critical hit, you get to roll extra dice for the attack's damage against the target. Now, this is something else that sometimes people will get confused about because critical hits do work a little differently in 5th edition than they have in some previous editions. So this is how it works. It's very simple. You roll all of the attack's damage dice twice and add them together. Then you add any relevant modifiers as normal. To speed up play, you can roll all the damage dice at once, and please do so. People that roll one die at a time drive me crazy. Don't do that. (laughs) Buy some more dice. They're not that expensive. So, you know, there, there are some consequences of this or permutations of this. But again, the, the, the basic rule is when you roll an attack and you score a critical hit, you take all those dice you roll for damage, wherever they come from, all those damage dice, you double them. You either roll them twice or you roll twice as many dice. And then any modifiers you have, you just add once. It's that simple. But that means if you're a paladin and you're using the, uh, your smite, you get to double those dice too, because that's part of your damage dice. Or if you're using a magic weapon that maybe you're using a a sword that does 1d8 damage and then does an extra 2d6 fire damage or something, you double all those dice. If you're a rogue making a sneak attack, you double those dice too. Any dice that you're rolling for damage for that attack, you double all the dice. So that makes things like smite and sneak attack and weapons that do additional damage, um, really awesome when you critical. 
Very, very cool. For example, if you score a critical hit with a dagger, roll 2d4 for the damage rather than 1d4, and then add your relevant ability modifier. If the attack involves other damage dice, such as from a rogue sneak attack feature, you roll those dice twice as well. And again, you can roll the dice twice or you can roll twice as many dice. If you can roll twice as many dice, roll twice as many dice because it's faster and everybody at the table will thank you. And if you're someone who's, you know, using a great sword, <laughs> you roll 2d6 dice and, you know, when you crit, you roll 4d6 dice, you really should not be coming to play the game with 1d6 die, okay? Um, unless it's your first time, then fine. But, you know, <laughs> if you're using... Or, or if you're a wizard that's casting fireball, don't come to the table with one six-sided die. I mean, come on, give us a break. Go buy some more dice. They're not that expensive. I mean, you can, if you really want to be cheap, you can go on eBay and get like a pound of dice for 10 bucks or something. You'll have more dice than you'll ever need. Or a nice thing, you know, a lot of times it's the D6s. We end up rolling a lot for spells and stuff. You can buy these little bricks of like 36 D6, D6s and it's like, I don't know, 10 bucks or something for those. It's not expensive. And, and believe me, rolling a handful of dice is way more fun than rolling one die over and over and over again and trying to keep track of, of what you rolled on them all. Not only is it faster, it's more fun. And you get to have more cool dice. All right, then we have damage types. So, you know, different things in the game have different types of damage. Pretty much any time you have a damage roll in the game, it's going to have a type. I've never seen a damage roll that didn't have a type unless it was from a third party publisher or something. And, and then they're just screwing up, but <laughs> all damage should have a type in the game. Um, types in and of themselves don't really mean anything, but they will interact with other things in the game. So for instance, you know, usually it's not going to matter if you're doing slashing or piercing damage, but there might be something in the game like a certain suit of armor or a spell or something where all of a sudden it does matter whether it's slashing or piercing. Or another more common example is, for instance, fire damage. If you're attacking things that, that don't have fire resistance or fire immunity, it probably doesn't or fire uh, fire crap with this vulnerability. <laughs> they don't have resistance immunity or vulnerability to fire, then it's probably not going to matter that it's fire damage. And, you know, you don't need to worry about it. But if they do, then then it matters. So, you know, um, damage types are one of those things that most of the time it doesn't matter, but sometimes it does. As a player, I would get in the habit, it's a good habit to be in, to tell your GM what kind of damage you're doing. Because the GM may not want to tell you that the NPC has resistance to fire or vulnerability to fire you know, so just get in the habit of saying how much damage you do and what type it was. You know, was it piercing? Was it slashing? Was it bludgeoning? Did you do six bludgeoning damage and three fire damage? You know, that's how you should describe it. And also, if it's slashing, piercing, or bludgeoning, you should know if it's magical. So you'd say, I did six magical bludgeoning damage. Okay, just make your GM's life easier. And same thing, GMs, when you tell your players damage that they take, you should do the same thing. It's a good habit to be in, into. Now, a lot of times with GMs, like we know, you know, what resistances or vulnerabilities or whatever the player characters have. So we know when it's relevant and not, and we'll tend not to tell them unless it's relevant. 
But, you know, you might forget that they drank a fire resistance potion or they just got an item that gives them cold resistance or whatever. So it's just a good habit to be into to just always when you're telling someone damage, just tell them what kind of damage it is. It's just easier for everybody. It's a good habit to be into. So here we have descriptions of all the different types of damage, acid, bludgeoning, cold, fire, force, lightning, necrotic, piercing, poison, poison, psychic, radiant, slashing, thunder. You can look those up. They're pretty self-explanatory. And like I said, unless someone has a resistance or an immunity or a vulnerability, it's more just descriptive. It doesn't have a mechanical meaning what kind of damage it is. So now we go into damage, resistance, and vulnerability. This is really simple. Again, much simpler than damage reduction in previous editions. If a creature or an object has resistance to a damage type, damage of that type is halved against it. And remember, you always round down. So divide by half, round down. If a creature or an object has vulnerability to a damage type, damage of that type is doubled against it. So unlike critical hits, you don't double the dice that you roll. You double the total damage because, again, this will apply to any modifiers, too. So, you know, if a player character is attacking with their dagger that does 1d4 piercing damage and also does 1d6 fire damage and the monster has vulnerability to fire, then whatever they roll for the fire damage will be doubled, not the piercing damage. But yeah, there you go. Easy peasy. So in that case, you know, the rogue's dex bonus would would go with the piercing damage. It wouldn't go with the fire damage. Like, you'll know. Usually that if it's a weapon attack that does some kind of extra special damage, then their ability modifier is going to go towards the regular weapon damage, not that special damage, whether it's, you know, fire damage or acid damage or, or whatever. Pretty self-explanatory. Resistance and then vulnerability are applied after all other modifiers to damage. For example, a creature has resistance bludgeoning damage and is hit by an attack that deals 25 bludgeoning damage. The creature is also within a magical aura that reduces all damage by 5. The 25 damage is first reduced by 5 and then halved, so the creature takes 10 damage. So again, you just figure all modifiers of damage first, and once you have that final damage number, then you apply resistance, and then you apply vulnerability. And... You know, you could have both. So you could have a creature who is vulnerable to fire damage, but has drunk a potion of resistance to fire damage. So in that case, you would total up all the damage with all the modifiers. Then you would apply resistance, which would divide the fire damage by half. And then you would apply vulnerability, which would then double the fire damage. Easy peasy. And you might think that those would just cancel out, but it might not exactly because of the way the rounding works in the game. Multiple instances of resistance or vulnerability that affect the same damage type count only as one instance. For example, if a creature has resistance to fire damage as well as resistance to all non-magical damage, the damage of all non-magical fire is reduced by half against the creature not reduced by three quarters or any other thing. Like resistances don't stack together. Healing. Unless it results in death, damage isn't permanent. Even death is reversible through powerful magic. Rest can restore a creature's hit points, and magical methods such as cure wounds, spell, or a potion of healing can remove damage in an instant. 
And it's pretty straightforward. Um, just makes a note that when you do receive any kind of healing, uh, your hit points can't exceed the hit point maximum. So any extra hit points gained are just lost. And also a creature that has died can't regain hit points until magic such as a revivify spell has restored it to life. So casting cure light wounds on a dead person doesn't do anything. They're still at zero hit points when you uh, bring them back to life or whatever hit points the spell says they'd be at. Dropping the zero hit points. When you drop the zero hit points, you either die outright or fall unconscious. So instant death. Massive damage can kill you instantly. When damage reduces you to zero hit points and there is damage remaining, you die if the remaining damage equals or exceeds your hit point maximum. For example, a cleric with a maximum of 12 hit points currently has six hit points. If she takes 18 points of damage from an attack, she is reduced to zero hit points, but 12 damage remains. Because the remaining damage equals her hit point maximum, the cleric dies. So in that instance, you're just dead. Dead is dead. Falling unconscious. If damage reduces you to zero hit points and fails to kill you, you fall unconscious. This unconsciousness ends if you regain any hit points. So again, there's no negative hit points. Zero's as low as your hit points go. Here we have a little sidebar on describing the effects of damage. Dungeon Masters describe hit point loss in different ways. When your current hit point total is half or more of your hit point maximum, you typically show no signs of injury. When you drop below half your hit point maximum, you show signs of wear, such as cuts and bruises. An attack that reduces you to zero hit points strikes you directly, leaving a ble bleeding injury or other trauma, or it simply knocks you unconscious. So, you know, this is a great way to handle it. And especially, you know, if you're like me and you don't tell players how many hit points the adversaries have, like, oh, the goblin has three hit points left. You know, I wouldn't do that. I don't do that. But a way that you can kind of give your players some clues as to how well they're doing is keeping this in mind until they get the goblin down to half hit points. It's not visibly injured. Um, any hit point damage they do until it's to 50% hit points is just them kind of tiring it out. But once it gets below 50% hit points, now it, it's got some scratches or some cuts or, or whatever. There's visible uh, injuries now. So that's a great way that you can give your players a little bit of a clue of, of how they're doing without just telling them how many hit points it has, which is kind of lame because um, we're not playing a video game, right? <laughs> but yeah, you know, it, the players can know, okay, well, once we see wounds, then we know they're at least at half hit points or less, which gives them some idea of, of where they're at. Now we have death saving throws. Whenever you start your turn with zero hit points, you must make a special saving throw called a death saving throw to determine whether you creep closer to death or hang on to life. Unlike other saving throws, this one isn't tied to any ability score. You are in the hands of fate now, aided only by spells and features that improve your chances of succeeding on a saving throw. You roll a d20. If the roll is 10 or higher, you succeed. Easy way to remember this is how I remember it. On a death save, if the roll has two digits, they succeed. If it only has one digit, they fail. So one through nine, they fail. 10 through 20, they succeed. So they have slightly better than 50% chance of succeeding. 
It's like 52.5% chance, something like that. All right. So if the roll is 10 or higher, you succeed. Otherwise, you fail. A success or failure has no effect by itself. On your third success, you become stable. See below. On your third failure, you die. The successes and failures don't need to be consecutive. Keep track of both until you collect three of a kind. And if you're using the character sheet in the back of the player's handbook, it has a place to mark off death, save, successes, and failures. The number of both is reset to zero when you regain any hit points or become stable. Now, this is another case in the game where something special happens if you roll a natural one or a natural 20 on the d20. So the death save and the attack roll is the only time in the game that something special happens when you roll a one or a 20. Rest of the time, it's just a normal roll. You just add your modifiers normal compared to the DC. So death save, rolling one or 20. When you make a death saving throw and roll a one on the D20, it counts as two failures. If you roll a 20 on the D20, you regain one hit point. So if you roll a 20, you regain a hit point, you're no longer unconscious. Damage at zero hit points. If you take any damage while you have zero hit points, you suffer a death saving throw failure. If the damage is from a critical hit, you suffer two failures instead. If the damage equals or exceeds your hit point maximum, you suffer instant death. So an AOE spell like a fireball could kill you while you're making death death saving throws if it does more damage than your hit point maximum. And even if it doesn't kill you, it results in a death saving throw failure. So AOEs can become really nasty GMs when player characters are on the ground rolling death saves. So that's a that's a trick you can pull out of your bag of tricks when when you need to. But be you know, that's also something you want to be aware of. Um, you know, know what you're doing when you start using AOEs when when player characters are rolling death saving throws. That's a that's a really bad time to realize how this works. And oops, I just killed everybody. <laughs> Stabilizing a creature. The best way to save a creature with zero hit points is to heal it. If healing is unavailable, the creature can at least be stabilized so that it isn't killed by a failed death saving throw. You can use your action to administer first aid to an unconscious creature and attempt to stabilize it, which requires a successful DC 10 wisdom medicine check. A stable creature doesn't make death saving throws even though it has zero hit points but it does remain unconscious. The creature stops being stable and must start making death saving throws again if it takes any damage. A stable creature that isn't healed regains one hit point after 1d4 hours. So if if you're a player character and there are player characters down on the ground making death saves, the best thing you can do is heal them, either by casting a healing spell or giving them a potion, something like that. If you can't do that, The next best thing you can do is stabilize them. You make a wisdom medicine check, DC 10. If you succeed, they're stable. They don't have to make death saves anymore. However, all of these rules here in this death saving throw section interact. So if you have a character who's at zero hit points and stable, they're not making death saves, but they then take any damage. They just got a death save failure. And next turn, they got to start making death saves again. And they've already got one failure. If they take damage equal to or greater than their maximum hit points and they're stable, they die instantly. Good things to know. Now I will tell you something, just a word of advice for for players out there um, from running a lot of games. 
be very careful with this. You know, when you have a fellow, fellow player character go down, getting that player back up should be the number one priority of the group at that point. Now, normally I am someone who would say that using healing magic during combat is not a good way to spend your actions or your bonus actions in combat. Usually I would say um, either trying to do damage to, to who you're fighting or trying to get out of there is a much better thing to do uh, with your actions and whatnot than trying to heal people. But when people are down on the ground making death saves, it's it's a totally different ball game because at that point, your number one priority, if you care remotely about your friend's character surviving, and if you care remotely about the group <laughs> surviving, your number one priority should be healing uh, that player character and getting them back up so they're not making death saves anymore. First of all, if they get three fa- failures, they're dead. And remember, if they roll one, that's two failures. So I, I've seen this happen where characters down making death saves, player rolls a failure. And next player's turn, they're like, well, I could heal this person, but they only have one failure. So I have a round, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to attack and I'll heal them next round. Then the player making death saves, their next turn comes and they roll a one, two failures. They now have three failures, they're dead. The other thing that can happen is if the characters take any kind of damage while they're making death saves, that's an automatic failure on the death save. So character has two failures already. They take any kind of damage at all. That's the third failure. They're dead. And remember that includes AOE. So any kind of, you know, fireball or any kind of flame strike or AOE spell, you know, the, the bad guy might not even be thinking about the people on the ground. He's just trying to hit the people that are still up fighting, but he's also hitting the people on the ground and they're taking um, automatic uh, death saving throws. If it's a critical, they're taking two automatic failures. And the other thing is, you know, a lot of times player characters, when you're fighting something, they're evil, right? And if you're fighting something that's evil and that's intelligent and that realizes that you have access to healing magic and someone's on the ground, guess what they're going to do? Guess what they're going to do if I'm the DM? They're going to attack the player on the ground because um, I don't know if we'll get into this in this, in this chapter or not, but actually it's in the conditions. So let's look at conditions. Okay. If you are at zero hit points, let's see here. You are unconscious. Okay. So let's look at the unconscious condition. Unconscious. An unconscious creature is incapacitated, can't move or speak, and is unaware of its surroundings. Makes sense, right? The creature drops whatever it's holding and falls prone. Again, makes sense. So again, if you're flying and you become unconscious, you're falling and taking falling damage with which, (laughs) okay, let's think about this, okay? You're flying. Let's say you're 50 feet up in the air. You take damage, takes you zero hit points, you're unconscious, you fall 50 feet, you take 5d6 damage. Right right now, um, you just took damage. That's an automatic death saving throw. You haven't even had a chance to roll a death save yet, and you've already got one failure. Automatic failure from taking damage. If that 5d6 damage is equal to or greater than your hit point maximum, you're dead. So that's why I don't think that giving first level characters the flying ability is overpowered at all. In fact, I think it's more just giving them enough rope to hang themselves, honestly. Um, my concern with giving first level player characters flight wouldn't be that 
the adventure is going to be too easy or they're going to abuse being able to fly. My concern would be that they're going to get themselves killed flying because they're going to get dropped to zero hit points while they're flying and the falling damage is going to kill them. Or at the very least, it's going to give them a death save failure. And then if they roll a one on their next on their first death save roll, they're dead. All right. So back to unconscious. The creature automatically fails strength and dexterity saving throws. So again, the fireball, you're at zero hit points, you're unconscious, there, a fireball happens, you fail the dex save, you take full damage automatically. Also, it gets worse. Attack rolls against the creature have advantage. So again, I'm the DM, I'm playing an evil, intelligent adversary, knocks you to zero hit points, you're on the ground and count unconscious. I know that you have clerics or other healers in the party or you have potions. I'm going to attack the downed character and I'm going to have advantage on that attack. Any attack that hits the creature is a critical hit if the attacker is within five feet of the creature. So basically, I mean, in a more general sense, if it's a melee attack, usually, right? Or I guess a range attack if they're within five feet of you is a critical hit. So you go down to zero hit points. I'm the bad guy. I attack your unconscious form. Not only do I have advantage to hit you, if I hit you, it's automatically a critical hit if I'm within five feet of you. And if it's a critical hit, that's two death saving throw failures. Plus I roll damage, critical damage. If that damage is equal to your hit point maximum or higher, you're dead anyway. But even if not, that's two death save failures. So... I mean, it can get hairy really quick. Imagine this scenario, okay? The PCs are fighting a group of enemies. Some of them are melee combatants. They, they've also got some kind of uh, spellcaster, can cast fireball, okay? PC goes down. Next turn is a enemy combatant, makes a melee attack against a down PC with advantage, hits, gets a critical hit automatically. That's two death saves for that PC. Next turn is the enemy wizard, Cast fireball, doesn't matter how much damage he does. He does some damage to that down PC, actually full damage because he doesn't get a deck save. That's the third death saving throw. That PC never even got a chance to roll any death saving throws and they're dead. And that's how intelligent and evil creatures are going to fight unless they have some good reason to take prisoners. And even then, they only need one prisoner probably, right? They don't need all of them. So the last PC that goes down, they might take alive, but not the first one. So, you know, that's why players, you're playing, your buddy goes down. Don't think, oh, I have three rounds to get them up. Don't think I have two rounds to get them up. You might not even have one round. Don't even think, oh, I can take my attack and the next guy can heal him. The next player that goes, if you care about your buddy's character, if you care about your buddy, if you care about your group's chance of success, the next PC that gets an action should be either healing that character or trying to stabilize them. Even if you have a healer that's coming later in initiative, you might not get to that person. So this is just me speaking with the wisdom of experience. Again, you play your character how you want. But at the end of the day, you know we're all people, we're all friends, hopefully, playing a game, trying to have a good time. And we want to be able to look each other in the eye when we're done. So imagine how you feel if your buddy's character dies and you could have saved him just because you'd rather make another attack against the ogre or whatever, or just because you just didn't realize how this works, right? So, yeah. You know, people, <laughs> I, I see people all the time saying that, that 
fifth edition is so forgiving and it's too easy. And I don't really think it is. Sometimes I, I wonder if those people really understand how all these rules work. Because actually, once you're making death saves, like the cards are kind of stacked against you, even though you have a slightly better than 50% chance of succeeding. The fact that a one gives you two failures, the fact that any attacks against you have advantage, the fact that any damage you take gives you one failure automatically, the fact that any attacks that hit you from someone within five feet automatically are a critical hit, and any critical hits that you take while you're at zero hit points are two automatic failures, and the fact that if you take damage equal to or greater than your hit point maximum, you die automatically, and the fact (laughs) that you fail automatically any strength or dexterity saving throws, which are going to include saves against spells like Fireball and Lightning Bolt and all that, that's a lot stacked against you. You know, I think the only way that people think that that fifth edition is too easy is either they just never get to the point where people are down on the ground having death saving throws or when they do the dm is being nice and not having the enemies attack the down characters which again if you're talking like unintelligent monsters or even intelligent monsters or people that aren't necessarily evil maybe they wouldn't do that but if you're talking an intelligent evil creature who is trying to win and they know that you have, I mean, if they think you don't have the ability to heal, then they, they might not be so worried about it. But if they know you have healing magic, whether it's potions or items or spells, what would you do? What would the, what would the player characters do, right? If they're fighting monsters that have healers and every time they knock a monster down, the, the healers are bringing them back up. What would the player characters do? Coup de gras, right? Well, we don't really have coup de gras in 5th edition, but these rules are almost as bad. So especially when it's the player characters on, on the receiving end. So, yeah. Food for thought. All right, monsters and death. Most DMs have a monster die the instant it drops to zero hit points, rather than having it fall unconscious and make death saving throws. Mighty villains and special non-player characters are common exceptions. The DM might have them fall unconscious and follow the same rules as player characters. And you could do this with every monster if you wanted to. So if you're someone and you think D&D 5th edition is too easy, you want to make it harder, here's a great way to make it harder. It's also going to increase your bookkeeping, which is why we tend not to do it. But you could have all your monsters follow the same rules of death saves as the player characters. And then you can see, see how ruthless your players get with down monsters and taking them out before they work on the ones that are so conscious and then wonder if maybe you shouldn't be doing the same thing to them at least with your evil, intelligent NPCs, I think you should. And honestly, if you're softballing like that, your your players are eventually going to realize it. Maybe not right away. If they're new players, they don't understand how these rules work. Maybe not right away. But eventually they're going to figure out that you're taking it easy on them and you're letting them win. And for a lot of us, that takes all the fun out of the game. If If the GM is softballing and letting us win, it's not fun anymore. All right, now we have knocking a creature out. This is something else that was ridiculously difficult to do in some uh, previous editions, and it's very simple now. We don't have to worry about subdual damage or any crap like that. Sometimes an attacker wants to incapacitate a foe rather than dealing a killing blow. When an attacker reduces a creature to zero hit points with a melee attack, the attacker can knock the creature out. So you don't have to track non-lethal damage or subdual damage or or take a penalty to, to use the flat of your blade or anything like that. You just, when you get the killing blow, 
you can say instead of the kill, I want to just knock him out. I mean, you should say probably before you roll the attack as a, as a GM, that's what I would want. But I mean, I'd probably let it fly once, but in general, I would say you should tell the GM before you make the attack roll, Hey, I'm trying to knock him out. But it's, you know, there's no special mechanics. You just take them to zero hit points and they're unconscious instead of dead. But you can only do that with a melee weapon attack. Or I should say a melee attack. The attacker can make this choice the instant damage is dealt. The creature falls unconscious and is stable. So actually the book says you don't have to tell your DM before you roll the attack. So that's cool. You can do it um, when you roll damage. So even easier. All right, temporary hit points. So there are spells and abilities that can give you temporary hit points. When you have temporary hit points, um, they kind of go on top of your regular hit points. Uh, When you take damage, you lose the temporary points first. And then any damage left over, once all the temporary hit points are gone, start coming out of your regular hit points. Really easy. For example, if you have five temporary hit points and take seven damage, you lose the five temporary hit points and then take two damage. Because temporary hit points are separate from your actual hit points, they can exceed your hit point maximum. A character character can therefore be at full hit points and receive temporary hit points. Healing, however, can't restore temporary hit points, and they can't be added together. If you have temporary hit points and receive more of them, you decide whether to keep the ones you have or to gain the new ones. For example, if a spell grants you 12 temporary hit points, When you already have 10, you can have 12 or 10, not 22. And most times you're going to want the 12. If you have zero hit points, receiving temporary hit points doesn't restore you to consciousness or stabilize you. They can still absorb damage directed at you while you're in that state, but only true healing can save you. So, you know, if you're in a situation where you have a fellow PC who's down and you can't heal them. And I mean, I guess you should probably try to stabilize them if you can't heal them, but you could maybe if you had a way, give them temporary hit points, it's not going to stabilize them. It's not going to bring them to consciousness. It's not going to help them at all with their death saves, but it will absorb some damage. If you know, there's an AOE that happens or something attacks them, but I'd still say the better option would be uh, stabilizing. I mean, the best option would be healing, but if you can't heal, Next best option would be stabilizing. Unless a feature that grants you temporary hit points has a duration, they last until they're depleted or you finish a long rest. All right, next we have mounted combat. Pretty easy in this edition, thankfully. A willing creature that is at least one size larger than you and that has an appropriate anatomy can serve as a mount. And the rules are pretty simple. Mounting and dismounting. Once during your move, you can mount a creature that is within five feet of you or dismount. Doing so costs an amount of movement equal to half your speed. For example, if your speed is 30 feet, you must spend 15 feet of movement to mount a horse or dismount. Therefore, you can't mount it if you don't have 15 feet of movement left or if your speed is zero. Makes sense. If an effect moves your mount against its will, While you're on it, you must succeed on a DC 10 dexterity saving throw or fall off the mount, landing prone in a space within 5 feet of it. If you're knocked prone while mounted, you must make the same saving throw. If your mount is knocked prone, you can use your reaction to dismount it as it falls and land on your feet. Again, you only have one reaction in a round, so if you already used it, 
for a ready to action or for an opportunity attack, then you wouldn't have this option. Otherwise, you are dismounted and fall prone in a space within five feet. So really simple. Controlling a mount. While you're mounted, you have two options. You can either control the mount or allow it to act independently. Intelligent creatures such as dragons act independently. You can control a mount only if it has been trained to accept a rider. Domesticated horses, donkeys, and similar creatures are assumed to have such training. The initiative of a controlled mount changes to match yours when you mount it. It moves as you direct it, and it only has three action options, dash, disengage, and dodge. So it can only do one of those three things. A controlled mount can move and act even on the turn that you mount it. An independent mount retains its place in the initiative order. Bearing a rider puts no restrictions on the actions the mount can take and it moves and acts as it wishes. It might flee from combat, rush to attack and devour a badly injured foe, or otherwise act against your wishes. In either case, if the mount provokes an opportunity attack while you're on it, the attacker can target you or the mount. So there you go. Really simple, and I think it's really cool that they kind of have two different ways it works depending on if it's, you know, an animal level intelligence mount like a horse that you're controlling versus an intelligent mount like a dragon that is acting on its own. And that's really cool. And finally, we have a short section on underwater combat. And as we see in fifth edition, this is pretty simple and straightforward like everything else. So when you're underwater and you're making a melee weapon attack, a creature that does not have a swim speed either natural or granted by magic, has disadvantage on the attack roll unless the weapon is a dagger, a javelin, a short sword, a spear, or a trident. So those weapons you can use normally underwater. Any other weapon, you have disadvantage if you don't have a swim speed. A ranged weapon attack automatically misses a target beyond the weapon's normal range, so you can't make long-range range attacks underwater. Even against a target within normal range, the attack roll has disadvantage unless the weapon is a crossbow, a net, or a weapon that is thrown like a javelin, including a spear, trident, or dart. So uses the throwing motion of a javelin. Creatures and objects that are fully immersed in water have resistance to fire damage. There you go. So that is it, folks. Wow, that took a while, but we got through Chapter 9 Combat, and this is a lot of the rules in the game. You know, like I said at the beginning of this, Chapters 7 through 10 of the Player's Handbook are really the rules as a GM that you need to know. If if you're pretty confident and solid on these rules, you're going to be fine, and you're going to be able to deal with pretty much anything that comes your way. And even if you're not, you know, if something comes up and you're not sure what to do, this is where you go. Part two, chapter seven to 10 of the player's handbook. The rule's going to be in there, you know, and it's pretty easy to figure out where it's going to be. Chapter seven is ability scores. So anything, any kind of skill check or ability check or um, I think, yeah, saving throws are in there as well are going to be in chapter seven. Chapter eight is adventuring. That's like your overland movement activity while traveling, food and water, uh, social interaction, interacting with objects and resting is all in chapter eight. Chapter nine is combat, all the combat stuff, including healing. And then chapter 10 is the 
the spell casting rules. So really, you know, if, if you're in the middle of a session, you need to look a rule up, or if you're preparing for a session, you need to look a rule up. It's going to be in one of those four chapters. It's pretty easy to guess which of the four it will be in if you're not sure. And once you've perused these much at all, you're, you'll start remembering uh, where things are. And then you can also use like post-it notes. I get these, uh, they're made by post-it. They're like these little uh, kind of divider tabs that sticky on the pages. They come in different colors. And those are great ways to mark uh, spots in the book. Um, you can mark just things that you refer to a lot. Like in my DMG, I have the treasure tables marked. I've got the encounter building rules marked, the NPC generation rules marked, stuff like that. And then you can also use it to mark something you know you're going to need for a given session. So for instance, if I knew there might be underwater combat, I might mark this section on underwater combat in my player's handbook. Or if I have a player that plays a paladin and has a mount and, and fights mounted a lot, I, I would mark uh, where those rules are in the player's handbook until I had to memorize, which probably wouldn't take too long if I had a player using those rules a lot. So that is the end of the combat chapter. Let me know if you have any questions about any of that or if there's anything you want me to go in more detail on or yeah, any feedback at all. I'd love to hear from you. All right. Well, that is going to wrap it up for episode 145. Thank you so much for tuning in today and joining me on my journey and digging into the rules of D&D. Again, I want to thank all the new patrons and all the patrons for supporting Starwalker Studios. I want to thank everyone who donates and everybody who leaves reviews and just all my great listeners. Thank you so much. I want to thank my sponsor again, Easy Roller Dice Company. Definitely check out their website, Easy Roller. Definitely check out their website, easyrollerdice.com. You can use my coupon code GMJ, as in Game Master's Journey, and you can get 10% off. Pretty sweet. They have really nice dice. I, I think I need to add to my dice collection. It's been a while since I, since I got some new dice. So we are almost through our discussion of the Player's Handbook. I've got the chapter on magic. Uh, chapter 10 has the spellcasting rules. And I think I'll go through the conditions, which is Appendix A. And I think that's pretty much it for the player's handbook. And then we're finally going to be able to go into the Dungeon Master's Guide, which is actually where I, I wanted to, to go to begin with. But I, I thought we should set up this firm foundation with the, the PHB stuff first. And uh, going to be continuing my Roles of the GM series and also hoping to get some, some interviews scheduled soon. And yeah, just lots of good things coming. So stay subscribed, keep uh, listening every week, and I'll keep putting out this show. I'm having a blast. And again, um, keep an eye out for the Kickstarter for my fifth edition adventure. I hope you'll check that out when, when that comes out. And yeah, just uh, keeping super busy lately. Um, but that's good. That's good. Um, it's good to be busy. It's good to keep, keep on keeping on. So I want to remind you that you can head to my website, starwalkerstudios.com. You can find the show notes there, lots of great information and links there. Um, you can find a link to easyrollerdice.com if you'd rather click than type and, and you can go use my, my coupon code. 
Um, and you can find all the great ways to contact me. You can email me, follow me on Twitter, Google+, Facebook, Pinterest. Check out my YouTube channel. And finally, you can call my voicemail and leave a message if you'd like. And uh, if your message is entertaining or enlightening, you might even hear it on the show. So I want to thank you again for tuning in. And I hope that you have a chance to play your favorite RPG this week. I will be back soon with another episode of Game Master's Journey. Until then, game on. All right, now we have knocking a creature out. This is something else that was ridiculously difficult to do in some previous editions and it's very simple now. We don't have to worry about subdual damage or any crap like that. Sometimes an attacker wants to encap Sometimes an attacker wants to encap Oh my god, if I could say it. Sometimes an attacker wants to in, in- Sometimes an attacker wants to incapacitate a foe rather than dealing a killing blow. This has been a Starwalker Studios production, your source for quality gaming and hobby podcasts. This episode's music, courtesy of Cloudwalker, Transboy, Renfield, Stanko, and Ish. See the show notes for more details at starwalkerstudios.com slash Game Master's Journey.